Morning. Morning. I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And verse 13 to 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, And with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Lord God, we just uh, pray this morning and commit this time to you, that you would have your way and uh, encourage us, edify us in your spirit, and, and orientate us towards Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's good to be back. Not world famous. (laughs) Um, I just got off the plane the other night, well, not too long ago, Friday night, and I took these anti-jet lag pills to fly from New Zealand. They, give them, they, they formulated them for the, the All Blacks, the rugby team in New Zealand, because they do. there's no other teams in New Zealand to play when, in that league. So they're always flying internationally, and they always work for me. And last night, uh, yeah, Charlie said, so how are you doing and everything? Yeah, it's all fine. I'm, no jet lag. It's great. And somehow, at 1 o'clock in the morning, boom, I was awake. <laughs> and I laid there for about an hour, and finally I just got up and uh, did some work for two hours, laid down, another hour went by until I could finally fall asleep, and then I slept in. <laughs> and I, all I hear, all I remember from last night's conversation with Charlie was 9.45, and I woke up at five after nine. <laughs> ah, you should have heard me scream. But uh, anyway, it was... It was a fast morning, but then Brian texted and said, oh, it's 10.45, don't worry. So anyway, that's all good. Well, uh, I have to say greetings from my family down in New Zealand. Usually they're always with me. They were with me last year when, when we were here, and um, they wish they could be here, especially when I keep sending them photos of what it's like to be back. And um, so they, they also send their greetings. And thank you for having me this morning. Um, just a quick update. I'm not going to encroach too much time into what the purpose of this morning is, but um, just as far as our ministry in, in New Zealand, things are, the opportunities are growing, and there's more and more, um, uh, more and more opportunities for, for things to take place. My wife is now teaching a Bible study on Tuesday nights. We have a home group that's kind of filling up more and more as time goes on on Friday nights, and I haven't spoken in as many churches in New Zealand as I have in this year alone. 
and other events and teaching opportunities. And um, as you can appreciate, that always encroaches on the time that it takes me to prepare and study and different things like that. And so there's other demands that, uh, so it's been an incredibly busy, busy year for us. But God is good, and um, yeah, so if you want more information on how you could possibly get involved, talk to me afterwards and we can have a chat. So, but yeah, let's get into, let's get into God's Word here in 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, it kind of goes without saying that we're living in times where there's cause for much concern. Um, in New Zealand, we're just kind of tucked away underneath the rest of the world, and we just watch things happen uh, globally. Uh, New Zealand just kind of sits silently and um, has to add their commentary on everything that takes place, and um, it's usually filtered through... Uh, the wrong kinds of media, and so we never really get the true story of what's going on, but we see things taking place, and, um, you know, but Jesus said, you know, times would, would be like this at the end times. There'd be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, riots, and all that kind of stuff is taking place. He also said there'd be persecutions in the, in the last days. Yeah, there's more in this, you know, in the last century than in church history combined, Brother would deliver a brother to death and father to child. And I couldn't help but think, well, possibly that's even referring to an abortion situation. Children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. Uh, there's a whole euthanasia thing going on in New Zealand at the moment as well. And so we, we have our share of battles down there in New Zealand too. And, and we wonder, just Jesus, how much longer? <laughs> like, really? Uh, come quickly, please. And we need to be encouraged in, in these uncertain times and be reminded that Jesus is coming back. We don't know the day or the hour, but he is coming. And we're looking forward to that day. And that's why I've just sort of chosen to share a few things from 1 Thessalonians 4. Um, it's going to be more of a topical thing rather than ex an exegetical thing. But we, uh, there's, you know, there's three main passages on, in the New Testament on the return of Christ. There's this one, 1 Corinthians 15, and then Revelation 19. But on, when we look at this one, you know, on one hand, this, you know, the passage is pretty simple and straightforward. There's, you know, as believers, we can read this and easily, easily understand what, what's going on and what Paul is saying. And basically, he's just saying there's some things that are going to be taking place in a certain order. And there's, there's reason for great encouragement and comfort. And he spells out what those things are. So there's not much that can be confusing to the average reader. But however, on the other hand, when you read those other passages that pertain to the times of the end, uh, in, in relation to this one, there's, there can be confusion and disagreement among Bible-believing Christians alike. And so as a result, we have a, you know, nowadays we have a variety of theological and eschatological positions presented on the table. And, um, but I want to just focus on the things this morning that we can count on, regardless of whatever uh, denominational backgrounds or convictions we may be from, and just bring some encouragement and clarity to some of the events that are mentioned in this passage, which is namely just the return of Christ, the resurrection, and the reunion that we'll have with Christ and the saints. So, um, having said that, uh, and one more thing I'd like to say is that uh, there seems to be two parts to Jesus' coming. First part being here, second part in being in Revelation 19, and simple reason is there's a, there's a Latin word here in this passage in verse 17, caught up, which is the word rapturo, from where we get the term rapture. 
And uh, so this is the passage where people refer to the rapture of the church when Christians are caught up to meet Christ in the clouds. And the reason why this is called the rapture is because the events described here and in 1 Corinthians differ considerably from that which will accompany Christ's return to earth to set up his earthly kingdom in Revelation 19. So that's the difference that has come to substantiate the difference between, um, uh, between the part of his return that people call the rapture and the part of his return uh, that people call the second coming. But both parts, whatever you want to call them or whatever you want to label them, uh, have to do about, with his return. One, to receive his bride, and the other to establish his earthly kingdom. So that may be helpful to you. It may not. Um, but several, but there's several things that are clear. First one being that his return is imminent. This is a truth that we are all looking forward to. Jesus spoke about this, and the scriptures mention it several times. One scholar has estimated that there are 1,845 references to Christ's second coming in the Old Testament. Uh, and there are 260 chapters in the New Testament where there are 318 references to the second advent of Christ. That's an average of one out of every 30 verses. Uh, 23 of the 27 New Testament books refer to this great event. And for every prophecy in the Bible concerning Christ's first advent, there are eight which look forward to his second. So that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. So uh, to the disciples, Jesus was having a conversation in Matthew 24... And verse 3, and they ask, what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus had obviously talked to them about it before, and they wanted some more details. And then in verse 30, after ex explaining a few things, Jesus says, uh, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So Jesus is uh, explaining this. In another passage in Mark, you think of the, uh, the time when Jesus was put on trial, the night that he was betrayed and before he was crucified uh, in Mark 14. And in verse 60, uh, I'm going to be there in a second, but there's, there's a couple of verses in the Old Testament. One is Psalm 110, verse 1. And that's pretty familiar. It's the most quoted verse in the New Testament. And so if you want to memorize a verse, you can memorize that, and you can automatically know like 25 at the same time. <laughs> you can impress your parents or your church friends. And, but it's in Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so... Hold on to that verse. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then in Daniel, there's another one in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. And we read this one. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, referring to a company, innumerable company of people with him, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. So we take 100 and Psalm, uh, sorry, Psalm 110, and uh, I'll have to excuse my uh, lack of sleep. If I just fall over, just you know, lay me down and let me rest. Charlie can come and take over, or, or Patsy can, or whatever. And <laughs> just kidding. Um, so I have to wake myself up. Cause anyway, so we take those two passages, and then we go back to uh, Mark chapter 14. And, uh, and, we, and we get to this event where Jesus is before the Sanhedrin. And, they're, and, they're, and he's being put on trial, a false trial. And, and, we, and they're asking him questions. They're trying to accuse him. They can't find anything. And the high priest, it says in verse 60, the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? And this is, this is illegal by Jewish law for a high priest to question Jesus. It's like the judge coming off the bench to accuse the defendant and try to prove him guilty. It's illegal for that to take place. And this is what's happening here. This is what the high priest does, and he asks him a, a direct question. And so if there's any unclarity in Jesus' presentation of who he is and what he came to do, this is his last and final chance to clear the air, to clear it up and absolve himself of any misunderstanding or whatever and, 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 and not face what is about to happen to him that night and the next day. And so this is his last chance to clear himself up. And so he asked him a direct question. And Jesus, it says, but he kept silent, verse 61, and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And this is what Jesus says. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You've heard this blasphemy. What do you think? And I think of that scene in, uh, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen The Passion, the movie, and it's in this particular scene, when this happens right here, the high priest rips his robe, and it's, it sends chills down my spine, because, you know, of all the things that Jesus could have said, he picks the two most specific prophecies about the Messiah from the Old Testament, Psalm 110, verse 1, and Daniel 7, and he refers to those two passages, quotes partial uh, part of each of those two verses, and he says, without flinching, that's me, and I'll be back. You know, and it's just, uh, wow. He's, and so he's, this, uh, there, there's, there's no mistaking. He says, you've heard me correctly. I am who I've said, uh, you're understanding correctly who I said I am, and that is me. And no wonder they got so upset. Then we go to Acts 9, 1, verse 9. Uh, 9 to 11. And now when, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. 
And so the angels here reminded them that, in this same, that, that the same Jesus will return in the same way. So what we have here altogether is, you know, we have um, the Old Testament saying it. We have Jesus saying it. We have the angels saying it, that, that he's going to return. And if Jesus had fulfilled, fulfilled all the prophecies pertaining to his first coming, we can be sure he's going to fulfill the ones pertaining to his second coming. It's, it's, it's bound to happen. It's, he, his return is imminent. Secondly, um, back to 1 Thessalonians, his return will be audible. There's going to be three sounds. You notice that there in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So there's, there's three sounds. He's, Jesus is going to give a shout of command, just similar to how he maybe shouted outside the tomb of Lazarus in, in John 11, verse 43. John 5, 28 also says that those in the graves shall hear his voice. How is that going to take place? But there's, you know, those who recognize Jesus' voice, even the dead, are going to hear it. Um, Jesus mentions the sound of a trumpet in Matthew 24, verse 31. He says he will send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul also relates his return to the sound of a trumpet. He says, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and shall be changed. It goes without saying that Jewish people were familiar with the sound of trumpets. They were used to declare war, announce special times and seasons, gather people together for the journey. It was blown when they gave the, the law at Mount Sinai. And um, that was you know, preceded by the trumpet blast. And even the, in the Roman Empire, in, in those times, trumpets were used to announce the arrival of a great person. So we have that sound as well. And um, Matthew Henry commented, uh, comments, the Lord Jesus will come down from heaven in all the pomp and power of the upper world with the shout of a king and the power and authority of a mighty king and conqueror with the voice of the archangel and innumerable company of angels will attend him. What a day that is going to be. That's astounding. So he's going to come from heaven with a shout and when he does, not just one tomb is going to be opened, they're going to be blasting open all over creation. And what a sight that's going to be. Thirdly, his, his return will be a visible event. This is, this is not really in this passage, but it is one of those things we can count on uh, when, it, when, when we're talking about his return. Uh, Revelation 1, you know, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. You know, back into in Matthew 24, 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear and all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's going to be a visible event, event as well. Fourth, his return is going to come without warning. The time of the end remains obscure. There's verses, you know, some say it's nearer than others. Um, some passages infer that there's a delay, uh, but the clearest statements indicate that the time cannot be known. Um, Matthew 4, 36, and verse 42, even verse 44, and, uh, you know, Acts 1 to 8 express the same thing, that the time cannot be known, you know, without warning, uh, at an hour you do not expect, those are the phrases, and for some it will be a pleasant surprise, for some it will be startling. I don't know, like one of the things I do on the side is, is um, 
I work in construction, and this last year, I've been working with this with this guy. He's more of a clown, and he uh, and he li we, he likes to play practical jokes on me all the time. And on the construction site, there's this um, there's this portaloo. Is that what you call them here? And uh, and so yeah, at our coffee break time, uh, there's this. He does this regular, and I'm prepared for it now. But he he hides in there. And then just as I'm coming to open the door, he goes, boo, you know, and scares me, startles me, and uh, he sneaks up behind me all the time when I'm, you know, cutting on the drop saw or something, and he'll sneak up behind me, and he loves to startle me. Maybe, do you know people like that, that love to scare you, hide behind the closet door? You know, maybe you're laughing because you are those people, or <laughs> maybe you're laughing because you do that to those kind of people. But, um, in, you know, the point is that without warning, Jesus' return is going to happen. And, uh, and I trust we're going to be pleasantly surprised when he comes, even though it is without warning. But we'll all see him, and it will be audible, and it will happen. Fifthly, his return will be with those Christians who have already died. In verse 14, we see, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. Paul makes it clear that you know the soul of the believer is with the Lord, uh, but he, he says, them also which sleep Jesus, sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. So he can't bring them with him when he returns unless they're with him now. And the Bible def definition of death is given in James 2.26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, um, that at death the spirit leaves the body, no longer functions, and, and, and soul, spirit goes to be with Christ if the person is trusted in Christ. Because, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, 8 says, uh, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And so his return is going to be with those Christians who have gone before, before us. Sixth, his return will cause a resurrection and a transformation. If we flip over to 1 Corinthians 15 for a minute, verse 13 to 19, I'll read here. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised us up, or, sorry, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins." Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. The resurrection is the proof that Jesus has conquered sin and death. When we fell into sin, it affected the whole person, uh, body, soul, and spirit. And likewise, our salvation affects the whole person, body, soul, and spirit, but all in their own time. And it will be the evidence, once again, that Jesus is Lord when this takes place. Another sort of a side note, the resurrection of the dead is not reconstruction. Jesus will not put the elements of our physical body back together again. I don't think so. Paul pointed out in 1 Corinthians 15, carrying on from this passage, that the resurrection of the human body is like the growing of a plant from a seed. Flower is not the identical seed that was planted, yet there is some continuity happening from that seed to the plant that is produced. Verse 35, But someone will say, How are the dead raised up, and with what body do they come? 
foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Down to verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in, in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Verse 49, And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the, of the heavenly man. So Christians shall receive glorified bodies like the glorified body of Christ. The dead body uh, is the seed that is planted in the ground. And the resurrection body is the flower that comes from the seed. Is what Paul is trying to communicate him. And when we, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So there's, there's that taking place. Secondly, after the resurrection and the transformation of the dead, which we just talked about, there will be the transformation of the living. Both will be snatched up in the clouds, which is the space between heaven and earth. The words caught up in verse 17 show the suddenness and the swiftness of the rapture and can be compared with Acts 8.39 where the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away and the eunuch didn't see him again. And all believers will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, first, the dead in Christ and then those who are alive and remain. Seventh, his return will reunite. This is... This is great encouragement as well, right here. And there's three things I'd like to mention here. First of all, we will see our believing loved ones again. That should be obvious. But one question people have is, will we recognize and know each other when we're with Jesus? I would say a resounding yes, absolutely. I think of on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, th the three disciples knew and recognized Moses and Elijah, and they had never met, met them before. And certainly, we're going to know other saints in glory, uh, including believers we've never met, perhaps on a first-name basis. Billy Graham might say, hey, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> you know, I've been waiting to meet you. I've heard all about your ministry. And, but we'll know, we'll know people. We'll know people we've never met. Because 1 Corinthians 13 says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as I am known. So that's the first thing. Secondly, this, this passage encourages us not to give up. I remember reading a story about uh, during the American Civil War with General uh, William Sherman. He, he drove his troops on a decisive march to the sea and um, in his fort in Kennesaw Mountain, he left behind a small contingent of men to, to guard the rations that were there. And uh, General... A guy by the name of General John Bell Hood of the Confederate Army attacked the fort, and a fierce battle was there, and one-third of Sherman's men were killed or wounded as they were defending, trying to defend the fort. And, um, and even that general who was left in command was severely injured, and he was about to hoist the white flag to, and surrender, and a message came through the signal corps set up on a chain of mountains that General Sherman was within 15 miles of the fort, and he sent the message to them, hold fast, we are coming. And those few words so encouraged the defenders that they held on and kept the fort from falling into the hands of their attackers. And I think, you know, as we might feel that we're about to hoist our white flag in the times that we're living in, with all the political things that are going on, and um, 
you know, he has sent us the assurance that he is coming. Just hold on a little while longer. He's coming. Uh, he says, I'm coming. He said, I'm, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. So the fact that he's coming again gives us hope. It encourages us to want to stand our ground, to not give up yet, and um, encourage us to continue to fight the good fight of faith. It assures us of our victory, and as fierce as the battle is and as difficult as it can be at times with the things going on, as difficult as the conflict may be as we serve him, we dare not give up. He's saying, hold fast. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm on my way. Um, Perhaps today. The third uh, thing, maybe, a most, uh, maybe one of the most important questions to ask is, why? Why would he be returning? Well, it's found in John 14, 2 and 3. I just finished reading that. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And he says, in, in other words, he says, so that, so, that you, so that you can be with me, is what he's saying. We simply won't be ready for his return if we're not looking forward to being with him. This is the whole point to be with Christ again, to be with him. And um, I was reading something by G. Campbell Morgan. He said, to me, the second coming is the perpetual light on the path which makes the present bearable. I never lay my head on the pillow without thinking that perhaps before the morning breaks, the final morning may have dawned. I never begin my work without thinking that he may interrupt my work and begin his own. This is now his word to all believing souls, till, till I come. We are not looking for death. We are looking for him. And I think that's just, that's just fantastic. He may be coming. He, he may be coming. He is coming, but he may be coming sooner than we think. And the, just the thought that he may come and interrupt what we are doing, <laughs> which I wouldn't mind. You probably wouldn't mind either. Whatever it is that you're doing, he comes and he interrupts what we're doing to come and take us with him. And so we shouldn't be, uh, you know, exodists looking forward to our going so much as uh, being uh, looking for his coming rather than looking for our going. You see the difference? Just being with him. And, um, you know, I was recently uh, driving through a town in New Zealand. I stopped at a cafe and there was this sticker that was up on the um, coffee machine. And, you know, this picture of, um, it was obviously a picture of Jesus standing outside this house, and he was knocking on the door. You kind of get the image. And, um, you know, and you think of that passage in Revelation, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And, and, and there's, this, there's a sticker, there's this picture of Jesus outside knocking on a door, and the, and the writing, the caption over this picture was, Jesus is coming soon. Look busy. <laughs> And I didn't know whether I should laugh or whether I should cry, you know, because it's not about just looking busy, you know. There's, uh, you know, I remember when Brian and I were working together out the hill and we see Charlie's truck. Oh, Charlie's here. Look busy, you know. <laughs> it's pretend, pretend we're working, you know. And uh, we, we all joke about that and say that kind of thing with our, with our other jobs and employees or whatever and... Um, but it's, it's a lot more than that, you know. We, we do want to be about God's work when we're 
you know, up, up until the day he comes. We want him to find us engaged in his service. We want him to be pleased with what he sees when, he's, when he arrives. But it's not just about looking busy. It's about genuinely being involved in his work and, be, and, and being satisfied with him until he comes. And then we just quit one job and start entering into something new. And he interrupts what we're doing, and it's okay if he interrupts our work. And he takes us to be with himself. So uh, a number of, number of things to be assured of with his coming. Um, his return is imminent. His return is, will be audible. It will be visible. It will come at a time we do not expect without warning. There will be a resurrection and a transformation. It will be with those who have gone before us. And it will reunite us with himself again. Let's, um, amen? amen? Let's pray. God, we just thank you for your word this morning. And we thank you that uh, we can be reminded and be encouraged again that you are coming and we do not need to lose heart. And you have equipped us for the task. You have sent your spirit to live in us and to reside in us to dwell in us, and, uh, and we can be satisfied with who you are even in the midst of uncertain times and even turbulent times and distressing times when we wonder how long, how much longer. But I pray that we would, God, be focused on you, who you are and be enjoying the presence of you in our life, enduring the things that are around us, being the, the light and the salt and the hope until that moment that you arrive. And God, I pray we would be pleasantly surprised and be looking forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.